0: Now that Ishbosheth is dead, along with his war chief Abner, the northern tribes of Israel seek to align themselves with David in the most intimate fashion. Gathering all of God's people as one nation, Israel calls upon David as their king. This is the seventh sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from Second Samuel in chapter 5, the first five verses, the first five verses, Second Samuel in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. By the inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron. And King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 30 and 3 years over all Israel and Judah. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians in chapter 2, the first 10 verses, the first 10 verses, Ephesians in chapter 2, 1 through 10, by the same spirit, the apostle Paul writes this to the church. And you, hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are ye saved." Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but God's word stands before us today, and the gospel is preached through it. Now that Ishbosheth is dead, the ten tribes of Israel, the ten tribes of the Israeli nation, now finally, openly and publicly recognize the legitimacy of David's anointing and gather themselves together in order to pledge their allegiance to him and his royal position as lawgiver, judge, and king. Note the phraseology that the scripture uses to describe this historical event in verse 1. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David and to Hebron and spake saying, Now note this, behold, we are now thy bone and thy flesh. Reverend Thomas Scott gives this overview of the situation. He says, when Abner and Ishbosheth were dead, the tribes of Israel were left as sheep without a shepherd. They had no inclination to set up another of Saul's family in opposition to David, and having observed the prosperous state of Judah under his government, they began to entertain higher and more honorable thoughts of him. Of their own accord, therefore, they appealed to him by their elders to take the government upon him. And as a reason why he should forgive their ill usage, they pleaded their near relation to him being his brethren, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They now praised his former services, which before they had overlooked, and they acknowledged the Lord's appointment of him, which before they had resisted. They therefore desired to put themselves under his protection and hoped that he would rule over them in tenderness and equity for their safety and comfort as a shepherd feeds his flock, as well as that he would lead them forth to victory over their enemies." End quote. Well, consider some of the details of the language used to forge this alliance. First, all of the tribes of Israel gathered together and come to David as one nation. And now this implies that there was a unanimous agreement among the elders of the people and the people themselves to approach David with their pledge of fidelity. Everyone, in other words, an incredible event. Everyone now is in agreement. When at one point in the history of Israel, they were in disagreement, or perhaps they were in agreement against David, now they're in agreement for David. We read nowhere, anywhere in Scripture, we read nowhere in Scripture of any contention whatsoever, which causes us to infer that everyone was unanimously at this point on board with their decision. And so, they are gathered together to the king of Israel, you could you could probably say that they finally they finally saw the light. Secondly, they gather where David was at Hebron. Note that they do not ask David to come to them, but rather they take the initiative and they go together. They are gathered together at a place where David is in Hebron in order to be under his authority and protection. Now throughout Scripture, Hebron symbolizes a very, very significant place, a very sacred place. It is often a place where victory is accomplished, as in the days of Joshua, when he fought against the pagan kings, conquering them in the strength of the Lord. Hebron was also where Samson, if you remember, where Samson brought the city gates of the Philistines after he tore them from their hinges in order to totally frustrate the Philistine plan to capture him. That was in Hebron. In the case of Abraham, he built an altar at Hebron after his visitation by God on the plains of Mamre. David too was very familiar with this sacred place of Hebron for it was at that place where he seemed most comfortable when he was hiding from Saul in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 30. Now the name Hebron literally means the place of association or the place of a place where one gathers together, the place of association. It comes from the Hebrew root word, to form a society, or more precisely, Hebron means, as far as the root word is concerned, where a place of fellowship exists. So it's very significant that this is where they're meeting David in in a time of fellowship, to form an association, to form a society. And it is at Hebron where this reestablishment of the people of God take place, which is symbolically a very victorious event. No longer is there a separation or a scattering of the people of God. Now they are gathered together in a victorious fellowship. And that's how we have to look at this. This is a victorious association, a victorious fellowship under God and in the care of David, who as we know is a great type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what is also very curious about the word Hebron The etymology of the word Hebron is that its original root, when you go down and you dig down, you drill down a little deeper into the word Hebron, its original root is translated as a place of enchantment. And in this instance, with David and Israel now being unified in this fellowship society, the word may also indicate that there was a, as we know, there had to be a divine intervention or a divine enchantment, a type of revelation that was finally brought upon the elders of Israel and the people of Israel, whereby all the tribes of Israel finally had their eyes opened to the legitimacy of David's kingship, in the same way that the saints had their eyes opened by the divine intervention of God the Holy Spirit. In the same way as Israel departed from the rule of Ishbosheth to the rule and the protection of, of David the shepherd king, the saints depart from the rule of Adam to the rule and shepherding protection of Christ in an intimate, victorious, Hebron type of association, a Hebron type of fellowship and union by the power of God himself in the power of his intervention. So the word Hebron is very, very significant. Now once gathered to Christ, the saints can claim victory over sin, death, and the grave as if they have been gathered to Christ at Hebron, which is symbolic of a city of conquest. Third, note the curious language of the tribes. Very conspicuous. Behold, open your eyes, David, behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. That language is the most intimate language that could ever be uttered. And it is reminiscent of what Adam said of Eve in Eden. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones. God presents his bride, Eve, to Adam. And upon gazing upon her, seeing her and her great beauty, without sin, without the corruption of the flesh, Adam looks at her as he too is in his pristine form he sees her and he exclaims almost in in wonderment this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man the most intimate language now to understand the gospel significance of this language not only with adam and eve but with david and israel as they are united as one to understand such a significance. Paul explains how the marriage union is synonymous with the union which the Christ has with his church. Notice Ephesians 5, 23 and following. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his own wife loveth himself. For no man ever hath hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. This is the great mystery, this intimacy. Israel's confederation with David anticipates the intimacy of the union that the people of God have with the Christ. This union is the most intimate union imaginable, which has far-reaching implications. Now think of this, think of this. We are bone and flesh of the Christ of God. First, This union, this intimacy, this association, this fellowship, if you will, this victorious fellowship of conquest is initiated by God. We didn't do it. We didn't initiate salvation. We didn't initiate this. Israel did not initiate this. It was the enchantment of the Spirit. It was God who initiates this upon the elders of Israel and Israel itself. So this union is initiated by God. Note how there was a change of affiliation where the tribes of Israel shifted from their allegiance to Saul and Ishbosheth to David. They were actually saying that we will no longer trust the man Saul nor his policies, nor longer will we trust the weakness of Ishbosheth and his weak policies, but we will trust David. So this shift of alliances, of allegiances, speak of that Israel is now trusting. They have confidence in David, even as the church has confidence trusting in Christ. And this can only be attributed to the work of God upon the people of God. Secondly, the terminology bone and flesh points to a marriage union where two become one, unification, as within the marriage union between Christ and his church. David and Israel are now, by this testimony, David and Israel are now yoked in an indestructible union where David is the head and Israel is the body. Thirdly, not only is there the marriage implication whereby two are yoked as one, but the idea also implies regeneration. The idea of becoming another's bone and flesh signifies an irreversible transformation. We see this in the vision of the dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 37. Note Ezekiel 37, 1 and following, a lengthy reading. Listen carefully. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me. Notice who is doing the work here. It's God is intervening. It's His intervention. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, They were very dry. No water, no life. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall have noticed he is intervening. Without the intervention of God at this point, the bones would remain dry, dead in the open valley. But God brings the breath, and that breath enters into them, and they live. Notice, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, note the phrase, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews in the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Thus saith Adonai Yahweh. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. They were slain because of the fall. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up on their feet an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold all my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And when Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, the graves were opened and the people showed themselves in the cities. But not literal graves, but because they were in the graves of their sin and they were in their Death throes. God opens up the graves. And they come out of the graves. And they go into the land of Israel as the people of God. And ye shall know that I am Yahweh when I have opened your graves O my people and brought you up out of your graves. And shall put my spirit in you. And ye shall live and I shall place you in your own land. And then shall ye know that I, Yahweh, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. An incredible testimony. In Adam, the elect are simply dried bones, destitute in the midst of a desert valley in need of the new birth of regeneration, which is the living water of the living word made flesh. Verse 7 describes how these dry bones are joined together to his bone. Now, while it seems to indicate that these bones are joined one to another it's actually stating that these dried bones are joined to the bones of God himself, Christ himself, indicating Christ's body now is in view, the whole house of Israel. Israel, by interpretation, is Prince of God. This union is then energized with life-giving energy by the Spirit of God, which sets them upon their feet to become the army of the living God. That's what we are the army of the living God. And this is what the ten tribes were becoming once they were joined to David as his bone and his flesh. They were becoming the army of God under the great type of Christ, David, now having separated from Saul. Once we are separated from Adam, we become the army of the living God under the protection, the shepherding, and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth, this union also has a hierarchy undergirding it. The husband is the covenant head of the wife. This means that he is the responsible party to keep that marriage protected from outside invaders. It also means that the husband is to love his wife by nourishing and cherishing her, and the wife is to reverence her husband by her piety and devotion to God. The idea here is that as the covenant head... The husband is to assist the wife so that she becomes mature in the faith. Through the regeneration and the intimacy of their union, Christ, as the head, as the husband, strengthens the bride, the church, to become the diligent, virtuous wife of Proverbs chapter 31. So the testimony then of the people of God, the testimony, of the virtuous woman, the virtuous church, the virtuous bride, is just that. She's virtuous and she's diligent. Not slothful, but diligent in her business. And what is her business? It's Christ's business. As Christ said, My business is to do the will of God. The will of God, my will is to do God's will, my business is to do God's will, that is our business, that is essentially our business. So through the regeneration and the union, that intimate union of the church with Christ, Christ strengthens her to become that diligent, virtuous wife of Proverbs 31. That's what Christ does. That's what He's promised to do. So if we are not the virtuous, diligent bride then what are we? Christ also protects and nourishes His bride, so that she grows in grace, so that she grows in knowledge, in piety, in devotion, in obedience, in boldness, in action. This is the nourishing. He waters His bone with the water of life, the bone of His bones and the flesh of His flesh, with love and protection, teaching and prayer, enabling her, bringing her to that point where she becomes a flourishing guard and watered quite well and powerful in the affairs of men and nations. And this is the idea of the word cherish. He cherishes her. In other words, he fosters or enriches her so that she can become the best that she can be. Is The Spirit working in you. To become the best that you can be for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. The husband is also to provide everything for his wife so that she can excel in her gifts. For the training of her children and for the ultimate glory of God and his kingdom. Are you excelling in your gifts for the kingdom's glory? Now these are hard questions. But these are questions we must ask ourselves. That is what true examination is all about. Now that's exactly what Adam failed to do. He didn't nourish Eve. He didn't cherish her. Not only did Adam fail to protect, nourish, and cherish Eve, by his failure, he subjected her to deception. And this is why Paul states that it was not Adam that was deceived, but Eve. Notice what he says. First Timothy 2.14 And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So by not executing his duty as husband, you might say that Adam was a deceiver. By yoking the ten tribes of Israel with David, they were obliging him to protect, nourish, and care for them by administering justice and providing security. David was going to be their husbandman. David was going to be their father. David was to structure his kingdom in such a way that the people would live under a righteous social contract patterned after the law of God, and under the oversight of God in the same way that Adam was to cultivate the garden according to God's righteous law decree. Now, David's kingdom was to be a theonomic constitutional theocracy. A theonomic constitutional theocracy. In other words, it was to be a lawfully structured constitution under God's sovereign rule. So the question is this. What does a biblical government look like and can we call it a theocracy? If so, why? If not, why not? So let's ask these questions. But before we can answer questions, we have to define some terms. A theocracy is where God rules. He is the ultimate chief, supreme, magistrate, king, lawgiver, and judge. Theocracy is actually a compound Greek word made up of two words, meaning God's rule. Theocracy is the opposite of autocracy or self-rule. Simply stated, theocracy is a form of government in which God or a deity, any deity or anything that is regarded as deity, is recognized as the supreme ruler and where the laws of that God or God himself are interpreted by the ecclesiastical authorities. So when we speak of a theocracy, from a biblical perspective, we are referring to the God of the Christian Bible and not some other form of deity. But understand this, every governing system is a theocracy where some notion of a higher God or deity rules, even if that God or deity is man and his, his corrupt laws. So there's no such thing as theocracy or no theocracy. It's whose theocracy. It's interesting because in Israel's case, God was the chief ruler and the priests interpreted the laws. Today, man is the chief ruler and Congress interprets the laws. It's all man-centered. So it's never a matter of theocracy or no theocracy. It's always who's theocracy. David was to set up a theocratic kingdom where God, not man, and no idol, was the ultimate authority and where God's law, His law, the Theonomos, was the standard rule for the inhabitants of the realm. This societal structure would include a representative human king, a high priest who would act as the king's counselor, and who would also act as the principal overseer of the ceremonial observances. Now the priest would also be the mouthpiece of God on ecclesiastical issues and would share the responsibilities that the king had on legal matters. And within that kingdom, There would be a system of lesser priests, the Levites, and a system of appellate courts headed by the judges. David would act as the supreme justice, even as Moses acted that way during the wilderness sojourn. Now, there was to be no actual legislative body. Notice, in Israel's pattern of government, there was no legislative body which would make the laws, since only God's written laws were to be used. So you couldn't just add laws to God's law. That they do today, it would be the application of those laws which would be adjudicated. The application of those laws would ensure the prosperity. Notice, the application of God's laws alone ensure prosperity. So it would be the application of the law of God which would ensure the prosperity of the kingdom by enacting justice and mercy accordingly because all of God's laws are just and equitable. These laws were to be used since they were holy. They were without any fault whatsoever in addition to ensuring that tyranny would be safeguarded against. By acknowledging God as the theocratic Lord, David's structure of government would not only honor God, but place David and his realm in a divine covenant relationship with God. Provided the nation kept its fidelity before God, it would be blessed. If it failed to obey and remain faithful, God promised. God promised. If you fail to remain faithful and obedient, I will bring you to ruin." Now knowing the fidelity of David and being convinced that he was an honorable man, Israel joins with him as his bone and flesh in the most intimate union. Fourth, this union, this yoking, as I call it, resulted in intimate communion. Notice it just wasn't a union, now this communion. It resulted in an intimate communion. Not just communion, not just communication, but an intimate communion with David, which presupposes a back-and-forth open relationship between the communicants. I want to stress that. A back-and-forth open relationship between those who are in communion. The Greek word used in Scripture for this word communion is the word koinonia. It is translated as communion communion fellowship or communication. The word is used to signify an intense fellowship with God but also with one another within the household of faith. It is this communication with God and with one another that sets the saints apart from the rest of the world. This idea of communion with God, it sets us apart from everyone else in the world. Their communion, the communion of the saints with the Lord and their communion with in His body sets us apart from one another. It is an honest, forthcoming fellowship without hypocrisy and without deceit, without any kind of agenda, a hidden agenda of hypocrisy. And this is why the marriage union is identified as the communion and union that the saints have with Christ acting as their husband. Communion, fellowship with one another begins with communion and fellowship with Christ. The more you are in communion with Christ, the more you would be in communion with one another and especially with your wife. Because without this intimate communion, there can be no real substantive fellowship it will only be superficial and sometimes even hypocritical. Now John sets this up first in his account of Jesus' priestly prayer, where he refers to the saints being yoked together as one in a divine union with he and the Father with this communication active, an active communication. Notice John 17:17 17, 17 and following. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, there's the union, as thou, Father, are in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me that they may be made perfect in one. Notice this union. That the world may know that thou hast sent me and has loved them as thou hast loved me. This union. John repeats this idea in his first epistle to the saints in 1 John 1.3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that... He also may have fellowship. There it is, koinonia, with us. And truly our koinonia, our fellowship, our communion, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's setting us apart. In verses 6 and 7, John declares a caveat to this communion in that it must be honest. Notice, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now the move to unify the twelve tribes of Israel under the one king resulted in a dramatic shift in its power base among the nations. That's what happens when a person becomes saved, when the church of Jesus Christ has true communion with Christ. The power base shifts from weak Adam To incredibly powerful Christ. Consider what happens when there is disunity. Remember, Israel was separated from Judah. There was disunity in the 12 tribes. So consider what happens when there is disunity or dysfunctionalism. When we are not galvanized to Christ. First of all, disunity causes weakness. Weakened body, a weakened body. Whenever there is infighting, whether it's within a church setting, national setting, a family setting, a community setting, a political setting, a marriage setting, or wherever, antagonism between parties exists, there is weakness. I believe that's why the Church of Jesus Christ today is weak. And this is why within the marriage union... There must be an intense and constant communication between husband and wife, and that takes time, and that takes energy, it takes passion. You cannot be married and not have intimate communion. Because if there is no communion, if there is not that intimacy within that marriage, trouble will not only exist, but it already does exist. If you are not intimately connected with your wife, your husband, there already is trouble in paradise. Israel's union made them strong, especially since its king was a God-honoring man who was by this time an experienced leader. While at one time there was division and disfellowship within the people of God between Israel and Judah, once they reestablished communion, once they reestablished that intimacy, that koinonia with David, their unity now made them strong. Secondly, disunity causes confusion. While Israel was at odds with Judah, there was confusion as to why was not the entire twelve tribes in harmony with one another? What was happening? Who was the rightful king? Was it David? Was it Ishbosheth? Was it Abner? What was God doing providentially? Which of the two groups were on God's side? Was it Israel? Was it Judah? So there were many questions as a result of the stress, the disunity between the two nations that should have been unified as one. So disunity causes confusion. America is confused. We in the Church of Jesus Christ are confused. Why are the churches out there embracing such wickedness? This confusion. But thirdly, disunity causes fear by being disunified the divided nations remain fearful that their enemies might take advantage over their division and attack especially when ishbosheth especially when ishbosheth was at the helm a weak king the nation was ripe for invasion number 4 finally disunity causes a nation to forget its purpose Today we find that America is not only weak, confused, and fearful, but America, even the church of Jesus Christ, who has it written down in Scripture what their purpose is, has forgotten her purpose. As long as Israel and Judah remained divided, they could not fulfill their God-given purpose The church has forgotten her purpose. America has forgotten her purpose. And as long as America and the church of Jesus Christ remains divided and disunified, which is always the strategy of the wicked tyrant, to divide and conquer, America will be weak, confused, fearful, and ignorant of their original purpose under God. But here it is. It's our task to redefine the purpose of the church, to redefine the purpose of the Constitution, to redefine the purpose of Scripture and the purpose of America. It's our task. Those who know the truth. Once Israel reunited under David, the twelve tribes regained its power base as a unified nation in the world. No longer were they simply a tribal entity. Now they were a true nation of power under God, David at the helm. And that nation was finally unified. And once those tribes were galvanized as one nation, They regain their strength, sobriety, courage, and purpose. Consider the repentant language of these tribal leaders and their people. Verse 2. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. Now notice the confession. These men are confessing. They tell David that even while Saul was king, it was actually David that was their leader. They knew this intuitively. They knew even then that the Lord had anointed David to be king instead of Saul to lead and feed the people of God as their captain. Now if we consider Saul as a picture of Adam, then this verse tells us that even while the elect were being led by their Adamic nature, it was actually God who was leading and feeding them until they finally came to the call, until they were finally called to come upon Him, to seek Him, by Him seeking them, to call upon Him as bone of their bones and flesh of their flesh. Consider the wording that these men use. They speak of a king feeding them. And this goes along with the idea of nourishing. But it also has a gospel significance. As God's people, we are fed with the bread of life, which is what nourishes us to be able to navigate our lives with strength, courage, sobriety, and purpose. Alright, so what is the bread of life? When does it come to us? Well, when reading the Word of God, when hearing the Word of God, when singing the Word of God. So what does it entail as it concerns a governing apparatus? What does the bread of life entail as it concerns a governing apparatus? Well, while the bread of life refers to Jesus and his word as it relates to salvation, and as it refers to government, it has a varying identification. Whenever a nation is fed with the bread of life, it is given the law of God to feed upon, which acts as an energizing and reconstructing force for good. Once the law of God is rejected, no longer is that nation or that church or that people or that family is energized at that point, they weakened. And what the people of God were asking David to do was unify them under the law of God so that they might be energized as a restructuring force for good. They were asking David to apply God's law to the national structure. If you remember, Saul did the exact opposite. Saul constantly violated God's law throughout his entire rule, which brought the nation into difficult times. Obviously, Israel finally had enough of Saul. I wish some Americans would have enough of their leaders and move on. And now that ish was also dead, they looked to David as a deliverer, fully prepared to have him reign as king over them. Notice verse 3 of 2 Samuel 5. So all the elders of Israel came to the king, to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now even though David was the anointed of God, and actually anointed by the prophet Samuel, by choosing David as their king, Israel still had to anoint him ceremonially. And this solidified in a public fashion the communion between David and the ten tribes, and it yoked Judah and Israel together, forming the entire nation of God, the twelve tribes of Israel. Finally, God recounts the duration of David's reign, which is quite curious. Notice, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. So it says that David ruled the nation as a whole for a total of 40 years. At 20 years old, he began to reign, and at 57, his rule was turned over to his son Solomon. Now, if the numbers mean anything significant, and that's why God puts numbers in there, To show some significant gospel association, if the numbers mean anything significant in scripture, the number 4, or in this case 40, has meaning. The number 4 is usually associated with universality, as in the four corners of the globe, the four winds of heaven, or even the four horsemen of Zechariah 6 and Revelation 6. The number 40 seems to speak in both a positive and a negative way. In the negative, we have the 40 days of Noah's flood the 40 years of Israel's wilderness trial, the 40 days of the spies searching out Canaan, the 400 years between the Testaments, and the 40 days of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. These seem to indicate judgment, or at least trials of some sort. On the other hand, in the positive sense, the number 40 seems to point to a period of peace and prosperity, as in the 40 years that the scripture states that the land had rest. The idea of rest after a conquest, and after a righteous government is set up, is in view when Jesus showed himself alive after the resurrection, during the 40-day sojourn, after his resurrection, before his coronation at, and Pentecost. So we see that when Jesus resurrected, there was victory, and then there should be, when everybody's gathered together to Christ, there should have been a 40-year Rest, but it's symbolized by the 40 days where Jesus shows himself alive before his coronation, his ascension, and Pentecost. Now, during that 40 days, Jesus' 40 days, which is intimately connected with the 40 days where the spies searched out the land of Canaan, which Joshua would conquer, Jesus too would spy out the land which he would conquer at Pentecost, when by sending the Spirit he conquers the entire universe. And again, the number four or the number 40. For it was at that time when Jesus empowered the saints at Pentecost, bringing them into union, an intimate union, and an intimate communion with Him as bone of His bones and flesh of His flesh. We then see David with his army of the 12 tribes intact, finally intact, at the nation of God, as the army of Christ, ready at this point, ready to fulfill its dominion purpose unto God. We will examine that next time when we return to the exposition of Second Samuel, and this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.